Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's review is the third entry in our series review of Wes Craven's slasher satire, Scream. Picking up after the previous film, Sidney Prescott and her friends are once again stalked by yet another ghostface killer, this time on the Hollywood set of Stab 3, the film based on the Woodsboro murders of the previous two films. And returning to help me weed through ghostface suspects is none other than friend of the show, Bernie. Welcome back, brother. I appreciate you having me back on. How are things going on your end? Not too bad. Uh, I think if I said I was looking forward to talking about Scream 3, it'd be a bit of a lie, but I'm happy to have the chances to talk horror with you as always. But this is a rewatch for you. This was a first time watch for me. I was pretty skeptical about Scream 2, and I was really relieved that I left watching that one, and I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, considering it's a sequel, and I figured kind of with the meta angle of Scream, the sequel would kind of be just played out and kind of just cashing in on the things that the first film did. So I went into Scream 3 even more skeptical given how skeptical originally I was of Scream 2. And I'm curious how this holds up for you on a rewatch. Um, so, I mean, I very similar in the sense of this has been a long time that I've seen this movie. So going through the Scream franchise again, once you start into a movie, you can kind of start to kind of gather some of the pieces of the puzzle from the positives or negatives from what you remember of it. Um, Scream 1 and 2, I really enjoyed. Um, this one, not so much. Um, <laughs> this, I mean, it has a good cast. Um, I like the general story arc, but just the execution pieces and how they went about the narrative of this, um, I, I think they they could have done a just a, a tremendously better job than, than what they kind of portrayed at it for us. Yeah, this is one of those films where the structure of it or the direction that the structure indicates it's going early on is super positive. And there's a couple of key components of the movie that I think, had they fleshed out more, would have made it a terrific third entry in the slasher series. But for a number of factors that we'll kind of get into in a little bit, uh, it all was not meant to be, it seems, uh, in terms of it kind of just falling apart and failing to deliver. But let's start with the intro. I mean, Scream and Scream 2 did a really fantastic job of, at least in the original one, it was, hey, we're going to present this very traditional opening and kind of exceed your expectations and make it have the humor angle to it that felt fresh and new. And then you had Scream 2, which kind of, again, it's a sequel, so everything's bigger, bloodier, and better to a certain extent. And they had the movie theater premiere opening. Scream 3 does a pretty bad job, I think, of kind of nailing the opening in terms of instead of giving us a unique set piece for the kills to unfold in or a unique premise kind of situation for the opening, we kind of just get something very generic that you would come to expect from a slasher and there's no real creative twist to it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, they they were using like that voice altering technology i don't even know if that exists today to be honest with you but um we can run past that i mean i like the the idea of framing leave shriver's character cotton weary in some way but i mean by the time i mean within the first five minutes we know he's not going to be a killer he's going to be a victim in this um so again utilizing his character i think they could have done this in a way to hide the fact that 
this scar, uh, the ghost face killer had that technology without necessarily kind of destroying the idea that it could be Cotton or it could be some of these other characters that we later find out are not the killers. Yeah, I think that is one of those elements that is really interesting and kind of like evolving the idea of Ghostface and how he can begin to mimic other people's voices with pre-recordings and things like that. I mean, in terms of like Cotton, they have that whole, not really a chase sequence, but him speeding through traffic, which just feels very kind of like paint by the numbers. And then once he arrives at his apartment and just kind of the chase fight scene that evolves throughout his apartment, it just feels like the antithesis of what Scream is supposed to be, right? I mean, there's plenty of kind of generic slasher moments in Scream, but there's always a punchline to it, or it's already, it's always playing out against kind of like your expectations, like I said earlier. But in this, it feels like there are so many moments like the beginning scene where the scene plays out and then there's no punchline or there's no kind of unique spin on it that it's like, did they forget what Scream is? Scream is not supposed to be just a straight up Uh, played straight slasher that's supposed to have those humor elements intertwined into some really uh, graphic kills in a lot of different ways Um, I mean I think the intro with Cotton there's lots of jokes to the point that it almost doesn't set the tone properly for the movie itself which I mean I guess it does set the tone of this being the most humorous one out of all the movies in the series that we've seen so far and yet that's not necessarily a good thing for me, at least. No, I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? There was the way that they went about the beginning on this. Um, it it switches between being serious and being a joke. Um, whereas as the movie progresses, it really does kind of heart more on the jokes rather than the seriousness. So whereas, you know, in that first movie, for instance, when you get the Drew Barrymore killing, yeah, are there some humorous moments when, you know, the popcorn's cooking behind her and it's starting to smoke and he's asking her about her scary, like, what's her scare, favorite scary movie? Yeah, that's that's kind of cheesy and it's, you know, kind of silly in that sense. But when we're talking about, like, Cotton's character in this third film is 100% on point. You can totally see a guy that was wrongly accused looking for his 15 minutes and then this is the area, uh, era, excuse me, when we still didn't have caller ID. Um, if you get a girl at that time and you're some kind of a mid-level celebrity, you're probably going to take that chance and have a conversation with her. <laughs> and then it turns out being Ghostface, um, you know, there there was just so many more ways I think they could have gone about make, you know, interweaving the the humor with the seriousness of it rather than just making things wholly serious or wholly, you know, comedic. And I think that just ended up unraveling the movie in its totality. Yeah. Plus, I mean, Cotton's one of those characters where he's been around since the very first movie, even if he only has a cameo in the first movie, he's been part of the Scream universe more or less for the entirety of the series. And while the films definitely don't shy away from kind of killing off characters that you wouldn't expect them to, Killing him off within the first 15 minutes of the movie, especially how they do, didn't really sit right with me. I kept expecting for him to pop up at some point later in the movie, like, oh, hey, joke's on you. He actually evolved into the killer based on his experience with how the media treats him or society treats him based on these false preconceived notions of him that he was actually the murderer. So that is definitely a missed angle with his character. And 
I'm just not a fan of them killing off a character that's so pivotal to all the other characters within the first 15 minutes. And I mean, even if they did kill him off at the end of the movie, at least then it might have been somewhat justified, right? They give his character an arc that is more than like in Scream 2, he's kind of like a creep in that scene where he corners Sydney in the library and he like grabs her roughly and is like talking down to her and trying to control what she does. So not taking the opportunity to kind of let him rise above that image of himself, I feel like is just a missed opportunity narratively uh, speaking, especially considering also like we'll get into the rest of the cast, but he's definitely one of the stronger characters when you compare it to this whole new crop of uh, characters that are introduced. Exactly. Exactly. One of the elements that I really liked about this movie that I don't think they capitalized on nearly enough is this idea of placing an emphasis on Sydney being a survivor right? This is the third film in a series. And for them not to address in some way, like, hey, this has been traumatic as fuck for the protagonist of this movie for the last two, where her mother's killed, a bunch of her friends turned out to be murderers, and they've been killed, and her other friends have been killed. And so to not recognize that would make this a, like a 100% a comedy, right? This idea that, oh, yeah, you can just kind of shrug off all of these horrific events. And the film sets itself up to analyze the fact that, hey, Sydney is very much a survivor and she's most definitely suffering from like PTSD. We see that where she lives out in the hills somewhere by herself and she's got all this crazy security and locks on her house and all these things. And yet nothing's ever done with that trauma, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the way that I would equate it is like in the first Terminator movie, Sarah Connor is she has the same experience. It's sudden, it's very violent, it's traumatic. The second movie though, she comes back and that trauma f basically morphs her into the ultimate survivor, the ultimate badass to a certain extent. And there's so much potential in this movie for them to do that, that the fact that they never run with that angle and they never really capitalize on it is super disappointing. Well, I think not only do they not capitalize it, they they use it, they they use specific actions of hers as a detriment to that as a whole. Um, you know, case in point, that scene when she's in the, the police station and Ghostface calls her and is like, you have to come here by yourself. You're literally in a police station. I mean, again, I, I don't want to take it too much to that effect, but like, there was so many different things that they could have done or she could have done as a character to mitigate some of the shenanigans that happened in that last 30 minutes of that movie. Um, even that fact that she had that second gun. Um, yeah, that that's a you know an interesting kind of a plot twist, but we only see her have one gun when she steals it from the, the police officer's desk. So unless she stole it from Detective Dewey somehow or, you know, found it lying on the street i don't know where she gets that second gun so you know again i'm all for you know overlooking certain plot errors or you know missing plot points in that sense but um yeah there were there were a couple of things that happened in this movie which um you know if it happened in the first two i would have been all right with but in this one it just it started derailing it more and more for me yeah so a big problem with the fact that there is such a severe lack of actually like Sydney in the movie. She's not in thinking about the film itself. She's not in a great deal of the movie, which doesn't make a lot of sense given that she is obviously the protagonist and the series protagonist as a whole. 
And I found out that that was actually due to scheduling conflicts for another movie that she had going on at the time. And they, they only had her for 20 days, I believe, worth of shooting on the set of this movie. And so it's like, at that point, why would you even make the movie? Or why wouldn't you delay it to a later point? It's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I understand some concessions might need to be made. They can't come at the expense of the pivotal protagonist of these movies, especially when you have this framework for building her up as being this person that's overcoming their PTSD and trauma and taking that and instead of letting it kind of wear her down in a sort of cliche way where she's like an alcoholic or drug addict or something like that, you get to see her get empowerment from that. Like it's such a missed opportunity and to swing and a miss on that opportunity. I mean, it completely destroys what could have been actually a pretty successful third movie in a trilogy, which I mean, how many series can you say that? Right, very few. I mean, what you just said though, I think is a key point. Maybe we, the the reason we don't like this as much, and again, there's an infinite number of reasons for why that, but maybe it's because the first two movies were centered around Sydney. You know, obviously the events that led up to that um, weren't necessarily directly about her, but um, the the main kind of emphasis was about Sydney's character versus in this third one, it's really about her mom, right? I mean, she's kind of, she's the linchpin in all of this. And yes, if we look past, you know, Sydney taking LSD and hallucinating her mom 16 times in this movie for some reason, um, I mean, really, it is about trying to figure out who Sydney Prescott's mom actually was. And she had some, you know, alter ego or uh, what is it, alias uh, name that she was using when she was in Hollywood. And then we get introduced to the Harvey Weinstein, apparently, of that time, which not good a couple later on. <laughs> That's a gross context of this movie, too, considering Harvey Weinstein produced this movie. Oh, did he really? Yeah, so that's one of those things where, in terms of in the film itself, I think it's a fantastic angle that, again, they don't address nearly as much as they should. They kind of introduce this concept and then they just walk away from it. This idea that, like, oh, hey, Sydney's mother, along with plenty of other young women in Hollywood that are trying to break in, that whole idea of the casting couch, like, right? You have to, basically, if a producer wants, or a director wants you in a movie... They want you first and then they'll put you in your movie, supposedly. Like one of those like pressuring women into having sex for roles and all of those types of things that the film addresses and yet it doesn't really go anywhere with it. And again, it's this idea that the film brings up a lot of these interesting plot points or different directions to take the narrative in and yet it's always just kind of a surface level examination of everything. You're ever, we're only ever kind of just grazing the surface of a topic or of an underlying thematic that the film brings up. I mean, when you apply Harvey Weinstein to actually being involved in the producer of this movie, it makes it a lot grosser, Yeah, um, obviously. Well, because that's not the only time that they mention that specifically. Um, n like, now one of my favorite scenes in this movie just became a lot darker. Um, that Carrie Fisher scene where, I forget, it's Barbara something is like, it's- Her stage name. Yeah, her stage name, and she's saying how she lost the role to Carrie Fisher. Right. And it's literally, I think she, I don't, I don't want to say this is verbatim, but like she essentially uses the phrasing of like, 
well, I didn't want to sleep with the director in that movie, so I didn't get it. The fact that that's used a couple of times in a Harvey Weinstein-led movie does not yet. That is a, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a recurring quote-unquote gag that a couple of female characters mention. And yeah, like, I suppose if, or in the early 2000s, people might have laughed at that, but now it's just like, given who is the producer on this movie and the fact that the film brings up that very problematic, uh, uh, I, don't, I guess, uh, things that happen in Hollywood, uh, supposedly, or that do happen in Hollywood, like, it kind of does give this movie a gross kind of feel to those moments that don't necessarily feel comedic in uh, 2020. But in mentioning the Carrie Fisher cameo, while I'm not necessarily like super opposed to cameos in movies, I felt like her cameo and the Jay and Silent Bob cameo, along with like Lance Henriksen being in the movie is, I forget if they call him Henriksen or not, but um, anyways, just those types of cameos, again, it kind of speaks more to this movie being focused on humor than it does horror in a lot of ways, right? This idea that the audience is in on, and I get that the meta humor of this has always been about taking the piss out of slashers and stuff like that, but at the same time, it's almost too self-aware for me in terms of, hey, look who we got here. We've got these big name Hollywood actors in here and we're beating you over the head with the fact that these are big name actors um, or they're pop culture characters that you're aware of with, in terms of Jay and Silent Bob. Um, little moments like that, they just feel like a product of a bygone era where it's just like, oh, hey, I recognize them. And it's like, okay, that was the whole point of that interaction there. Like it doesn't serve to push along the plot of this film in a meaningful way. It's kind of just like a mini gag and then it's over and then you're kind of left there like, okay, like that was random. At least that's how I felt about all those moments. No, I mean, I, I can't agree with you more. And, and two notes that um, are silly yet I think relevant. One, I actually never saw Jalen Silent Bob. Um, I knew who they were when that cameo happened, but again, I was just more confused at why that was in there. Those cameos are up with that guy from Migos being in that Narcos Mexico scene when he's selling them. Um, again, it, it's just, I get the, the cameo thing in the 90s and maybe the early 2000s, but yeah, I think maybe after 2006, we should probably put a kibosh on that whole idea. Yeah, and I think that these little moments that don't really add up for us speak to the film's biggest problem and why the film narratively does not work as well as it should for us is that Kevin Williamson did not return to write this, who was the writer of the original two. Uh, they instead hired Aaron Kruger to take over the role. And while Williamson had written outlines for the second and third movie, he went on to write, obviously, the second movie. But with this one... Kruger, for whatever reason, did not take the time to read through that or he kind of just dismissed it. And he even admitted himself in an interview. He was like, yeah, it's hard for me to kind of embody the characters from the past two films. And it's like, dude, you had the fucking you had the notes from the master right there, like the scream master. And then, of course, Wes Craven obviously had been there for every single film that came out before this. So he was able to kind of like pitch in and help. But this resulted in them having to rewrite pages constantly, and sometimes pages weren't done, apparently, until the day they had to film the scene. So it's like, yeah, no wonder this whole movie feels very disjointed and kind of out of whack with the previous two, 
they were writing pages up until the moment they had to write, they had to film the scene. Right. Which then makes you wonder if this is the outcome after all those edits and changes, what in God's name was Wes some of those earlier drafts? Because this is, yeah, this was kind of a nightmare. And, you know, going into, you know, the that scene when they're in the remake of, of Sidney Prescott's house, um, it, it just... I don't know. To me, was that was that just weird how all that unfolded and how characters were just popping in and out um, like of scenes? There, there was no continuity, it seemed like. So I was definitely not a fan of kind of just the emphasis that is placed on secondary characters. And we know that that is because um, Nev Campbell was not in most of the movie because she wasn't there. She was there for 20 days. So they had to fill in the film with something. Um, it's just that, again those characters are not developed nearly as well. And a lot of them they're introduced in this movie and then they get killed off right away or they just serve as fodder kind of. And so it very much is the instance where you're like, well, why am I going to get invested in anybody? They just serve as fodder for Ghostface, and they don't bring a whole lot to the movie that we haven't already seen before. Right. There's so many characters where it's like, they're just kind of these tropes of Hollywood which is fine, but then at the same time, they all are the same person. They're kind of just all in it for themselves. They leave the rest of the group. They do things in their own self-interest, or they just serve as like a punchline for a joke or a kill or something like that. And I mean, the bigger issue is that a majority of the kills in this are just not creative or interesting. Again, it kind of speaks to like the fatigue that I have with this movie in that it just feels like a bad slasher for a majority of the movie, or not for a majority of the movie, actually, I should say it feels generic, like a generic slasher for those scenes that actually are supposed to be horror. Whereas most of the movie is just set up for punchlines and a lot of humor that for the third and entry just kind of feels very deflated. Yeah, I mean, Randy's death in the second scream had more blood than probably all of the kills in this movie combined. Uh, So, I mean, you know, Again, to, to your point, the character arcs just weren't developed. I mean, like, Detective Mark, uh, was it Kilmeade, um, played by Patrick Dempsey? Like, he comes off very creepy. You start to think about Randy's rules about, you know, there's, you know, basically anyone's a suspect. So when he starts to get a little too nosy about where Sydney is, you're like, yeah, this, this kind of seems weird. And, um, that girl, the actress that gets killed on the stairwell, um, I honestly thought it was her the whole time, even after watching this, you know, whatever, 10 years ago that was, um, just cause she's such a weird character in this. Um, I forget who she was trying to replay. Was it Gail? I think that, no, I think that was, ne- uh, she was supposed to play Sydney. Oh. That was Sydney standing, but yeah, no, there are a lot of misdirects with certain of the characters, but again, they're so obvious, I feel like. And again, it's this idea that they're supposed to be obvious in the other movies because it's like, hey, anybody could be a suspect. It could be any of these people. Everybody's acting suspicious. But I'm looking for more in the third film in a franchise that prides itself on the fact that it keeps evolving. It keeps making fun of the genre and the tropes and the staples and all these different ways. But it keeps redefining it or making it bigger and more convoluted in a certain extent. And this film just doesn't do that. This film feels like they tried to do their best impression of the first two films. And I mean, that's what it comes off feeling like a majority of the time for me. 
Yeah, no, I, I can't agree with you more on that. I mean, you know, Roman's death for death, uh, for instance. Um, you know, I understand Courtney Cox's character is, you know, more on the sillier side than serious, but that whole scene of her finding his body and then um, that girl, uh, actually, I'm sorry, yeah, the girl that plays Gail Weathers' character in the movie then, um, like, you know, jumps out basically and they run off, uh, you know, run off up the stairs trying to find Dewey. Um, it, it just, it didn't make any sense to how the movie was going because you had serious moments and then again, you have this kind of more of a silly death and silly kind of way of it unfolding. Um, it, the back arc to that being, you know, five minutes later, um, ghost faces running through and stabbing people and pushing people away. It's just, it's like you said, it's just very disjointed throughout the whole film and it doesn't really stand up on itself. Yeah, I wanted to backtrack for a minute to something you said earlier where you mentioned Randy's death and how bloody that scene was. And when you're watching this movie, you can't not notice that there is almost zero blood or like graphic violence. Obviously there's violence, people get thrown through stuff, Ghostface gets kicked in the nuts however many times and those kind of standbys, but there's very little graphic violence. There's very little like showing wounds or blood or gore. And I didn't realize that that was because this movie came out the year after Columbine. Obviously when Columbine happened, you and I were still in elementary school, but uh, yeah, that was an event that they had a lot of people in the media, especially looking for like motives behind why those two kids did what they did. And of course, what was the easy scapegoat? It was heavy metal, video games, and movies. And so the backstory is, is that once again, after Craven had all of this kind of rope with uh, MPAA to make super violent movies, all of a sudden that was all taken away for the third entry and that the producers were pressured into being like, hey, we shouldn't have any blood. We shouldn't have any gore or violence really in this. We should make it more of a comedy because we don't want to associate it with that violent event that happened, which is of course ridiculous no matter if you're looking at that that information in 2000 or if it's in 2020. Like, It's a ridiculous notion to try to connect the dots between a horrific event that occurred and a piece of entertainment that is 100% made up. I mean, I agree with you. I, I, maybe not at that time, because um, I mean, we heard it even growing up through, uh, you know, Sandy Hook and stuff like that. We heard crazy people saying that crap. But um, to your point on that, I think they do a good job of being meta to give these guys a little bit of a, a compliment. They mentioned that very specifically, um, or that very instance that you're talking about. There's a, sh a scene with Roman and that other movie executive and three of what looks like the financiers of, of the stab movie. And they're talking about not canceling it. Um, you know, Roman is saying we shouldn't cancel this because uh, movies don't dictate to that. And that other executive is obviously arguing the opposite. Um, so, you know, to their point, um, it, I don't know. This doesn't necessarily seem like a, a, a huge part of this, but in terms of the rewrites and things like that, I can then start to understand at least why this was a little bit crippled on impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just think it's so funny that he fought so hard in Scream 2. They made like an extra gorier version, so that way if they came back and got cuts, it would still be mostly the movie that they intended. 
And then that's all taken away in the third in the series, even though the previous two films proved to be monumental successes, both both with uh, the box office and critically um, in terms of like fans and whatnot. Um, so that was just very interesting and strange to me. And it shows, hey, not a lot has changed uh, in the 20 years since that movie was released. Because like you said, every time there's some horrific event or killing that happens, like one of the first things is the media that gets or forms of media, video games, movies, those types of things. So it was but yeah, the film does do to their credit, it does do a good job of kind of addressing that in a humorous way. Um, it's just a shame that it pushes the film into such a comedic corner that the films have never been, right? That's part of what I think is really jarring about this movie compared to the previous two is that the previous two also had humor and yet they never felt like comedies. They always kind of felt like slashers that had humor in them. Whereas this feels very much like a comedy that has a couple of kills in it that are not satisfying or at all and are not indicative of like Wes Craven being the horror icon that he is. Um, I think another element with the disjointedness is that after having the script for the previous film leaked online, they wrote three different endings and they had three different scripts flo uh, floating around during the time of Scream 3 development and while they were shooting to the point that like the cast didn't even know until the day that they were shooting what they were shooting. It seems very difficult, which it was, and that's probably why everything feels like it was kind of like they filmed a scene and then they copy and pasted it into the movie somewhere. Um, but you had even mentioned like Patrick Dempsey as the cop. He was hired the day before they were going to shoot his scenes. So he had to memorize his dialogue like 12 hours, 16 hours before he showed up to start filming. So it's not a, uh, a mystery why his character is so underwhelming amongst everybody else. Well, I mean, his literally his lines are "Where is Sydney?" and then stare at people awkwardly. Yeah, he he also disappears in the movie for like twenty minutes at a time. Yeah, <laughs> so it's hard to even keep track of that. Yeah, they had to reshoot scenes with. They had to reshoot the entire ending actually, and they had to make sure to include him in more of it because they're like, "Hey, this guy that we introduced and made a point of like saying he could be Ghostface, he just disappears." So it's like, yeah, maybe you guys should think about fucking including that character. <laughs> I mean, they could have had two, because there's only one killer, right? It's only just one. So far, this is the only entry in the series that has had one killer. Yeah, I mean, again, now the, the more that you make mention these things, it's it's very understandable then why this is probably Wes Craven's worst movie, if not one of the worst to, to a minimum. Um, it's the Scream movie that I've enjoyed the least, that I will say. I, I, w I would agree with that. I would agree with that assessment. But um, in terms of like Roman's character and the ultimate um, kind of reveal that apparently Roman, who ends up being Sydney's half brother, is the reason for all of this. What what is your thought on that? So I'll start with I like the idea of us getting to we learn that hey, there's actually a puppet master to all of the events that have happened from the beginning of the first film onwards. This idea that, oh, hey, Billy Loomis didn't just decide to go on a killing spree because he found out about this, about Sidney's mother having the affair with his father. He was told about that. And this idea that somebody was pulling the strings and ensuring that all of these ghost face murders were playing out, I thought is an interesting angle. And it kind of speaks to this idea of slasher movies in that, oh, hey, there's always something at work in the background, potentially, that's making all these things happen. 
the fact that it's her twin brother or half brother though is like kind of a bit much and I know with the Scream 2 I was a fan of them having an antagonist that you couldn't guess you couldn't guess that Billy's mother was the killer in the second one because how would you we didn't know who she was or anything like that and to kind of like return to the well in terms of like hey we're going to present somebody as a killer that you would have no way of guessing I was not a fan of I wish that they kind of orchestrated that a little differently what did you think I agree with that I I genuinely loved the America's home videos quality of like stalking he did on his own mother, which was just, dude, you're camping out your mom while she's having sex. Like what the hell is wrong with you? That just, that, that was a weird thing for me, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't, yeah, again, jumping over the fact that there's a lot of things in this that just freak you out. Um, he's just a weird character in this movie that doesn't there's like you know coming back to character consistency in a character arc the only thing we know about this guy is that he's a director there's nothing else that we know that like it just it isn't satisfying to me when i saw that i would have been much more satisfied if it was that actress that was playing weird that kind of ran off and ended up getting stabbed um if it was somehow cotton weary like literally anything else other than that i would have been satisfied with i think just because again there was no real you know i get the puppet master thing but it wasn't really as i think powerful as they thought it would be at least in my opinion there was nothing really satisfying about it and I mean, there were, so there was originally supposed to be a potential ending that they were going to have. But again, because of Columbine, it didn't happen. They were planning on bringing Lillard back, Matthew Lillard, who played Stu, to right. be like, oh, hey, joke's on you guys. He actually survived. And now he's finishing what he started. But they decided to axe that because he was going to be a high school student, obviously. And they were going to have scenes that involved the high school or there was going to be a connection to high school because people would be like, oh, from the first movie, he was a high schooler. And so they decided, like, we don't want anything associated with schools or students involved in killing. So, again, they made this massive leap between Columbine and how awful that was and some kind of correlation between media um, that unfortunately ruined what could have been at least a fun ending, right? Some type of callback to the original. But there was another big twist ending that they had plans that they scrapped that I think would have been kind of interesting. They said that the killings were to be caused by insane fans of the stab movies. Kind of like making fun of this idea that, hey, if you watch enough horror movies, you're going to end up enacting the things you see in them. And I think that would have been a fantastic ending because it's making fun of the fact that, hey, these studios are all concerned about how their movies are going to be viewed in the public space and it's like yeah they're just fucking movies they don't make people do these things and to have an ending where that's exactly what happens would have been so in line with that brand of satire that they've done with the previous two films that the fact that they went with this like safe half brother bullshit is just super disappointing yeah i mean i I think you really hit the nail on the head on that and that um this movie had so many other creative ways to go about it um, it somehow did a pretty good job at the box office regardless 
it ended up grossing over 160 million dollars somehow so um you know apparently people still have an appetite even at that point for more scream um but yeah this in in the the spectrum of of the movies this is probably on the the low end of the scale i would say yeah absolutely but but, uh before we wrap up were there any of your favorite kill scenes throughout the movie because i'll be honest this movie was really lacking again like we said and kind of like kills and even like memorable set pieces but i'm curious if you had any that stood out to you because there's one in particular that really stood out to me um i think the only one that stood out to me and this isn't even i mean it is a scream death i guess uh, or a ghost face death but it wasn't necessarily directly through him um one of the actors goes back into the building to like read a line from uh was it from from the script yeah and she's doing lines words and then he can't read the last word and he fucking he light he doesn't turn on a goddamn lamp he fucking (laughs) lights a lighter uh fucking match and the whole thing blows up because of gas which to be fair that is an interesting way to kill someone um in that kind of a movie but um I mean that that would be kind of my most memorable kill just because of, of so of it being so kind of out of the blue to what we were used to. That's a scene that I think would have been a lot better if they hadn't cut it so short, mm-hmm. right? Because they had him reading through the pages and he's supposedly reading about what's going to happen next because right. Ghostface is sending them these uh, faxes. If anybody out there remembers what a fax machine is, he's faxing them these pages of the script and it's kind of like alluding to the death of people. And I wish that scene had just gone on longer because they kind of build up a little bit of tension. And then the big kick is that he lights the lighter, it sets the gas off, and the house explodes. Um, so that was kind of underwhelming. But I think my favorite scene is probably the uh, on-set visit when Sydney actually goes to the studio where they're filming Stab 3. And she walks out and she realizes, oh shit, I'm at, I think it was Stu's house where they have the big party. And then she sees her own house. And she goes into her house and then... The how, when she's wandering around, they've got like all the bodies and blood set up of her mother, her dead mother. And that's, again, this idea that like Sydney has all this trauma that she's referenced, but she's never actually been forced to face that trauma in a lot of ways, right? Even though she's all about this security lifestyle, she's basically run away from her problems and it's to a certain extent, run away from her trauma. And this forcing her to face the trauma and then obviously having Ghostface show up and chase her through the worst memories of her entire life, I thought was really, really interesting and well done. Except again, it's one key moment in an almost two hour film. So I think we just needed a lot of moments like that. And had Sydney been in the movie more, I hope that we would have gotten more of those. But other than that, I think Jamie Kennedy having a cameo in it was hilarious. And because I was still so pissed off about him getting killed in two as suddenly as he does. But, uh, Yeah, just getting to see Randy one more time was awesome because he's a character that, I mean, considering how many new characters are in the movie from 2 and 3 that did not have nearly as big an impact as Randy did, I mean, it was just nice to see a character that showed up for, I don't know, three minutes and he's already more memorable and impactful than three-fourths of the new cast. I mean... That was just a kind of a little moment that I really enjoyed. So, yeah, I mean, to to your point, uh, you know, I think... I think this movie had a lot of promise. I think that there were things, you know, probably outside of this 
Wes Craven's control that uh, contributed to this being underwhelming. But um, I know that there's a fourth one out there um, that we might be able to talk about. So hopefully that one's a little bit more uh, up to snuff to what you were used to. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, I think it's very telling and it's promising that this film was so underwhelming to the point that Wes Craven kind of like wanted to be done with horror in a lot of ways. And for some reason, something about the fourth film, whether it was the script or the talent involved, convinced him to come back and direct the fourth one. And I mean, it took 11 years, but that 11 year gap, I think, is pretty telling about the fact that he felt comfortable with coming back, right? It wasn't, oh, hey, that was shitty. Let's wait two years and maybe I'll come back. It was like a decade plus. And so that actually has me excited to check out the fourth film, this idea that it's been 11 years. I'm comfortable with returning to this thing that I thought I was never going to return to. And of course, like Nev Campbell coming back, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, getting some of that core cast to return, I'm really excited about. And uh, it makes, makes me super excited to check out Scream 4 with you. You know, I will say, you know, just to play devil's advocate, 10, 11 years also can mean a lot of financial hardship. So this could also have been a money. That's true. Appreciate you ending us on a dour note. (laughs) But uh, as always, man, it's a a pleasure having you on to chat horror, and I can't wait to chat about Scream 4 with you next week. Appreciate it, brother. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.